Hello, everybody, and welcome to the fifth episode of the Keep Coding podcast. I am extremely happy today because I have one of the people I've been watching, well, for years now, live streaming on Twitch, and he's one of the reasons why I'm actually live streaming all this here on YouTube for you. Um, so please welcome in the chat, uh, Jeff Rich. And hello, Jeff. Hello, how's it going, Nick? I'm great. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Oh my gosh. I, wow. I, you've been watching me for a while. It, it feels like I only started streaming yesterday. <laughs> well, I checked that. And you've been streaming. Is it, has it been on and off for five years, technically? So it's been every week since November 2017, I want to say. So yeah. I couldn't find data all the way back there. So even then you were doing it uh, every week. Yeah, every week, Tuesdays, Thursdays. I I dropped uh, Wednesdays and Fridays in there at one point. The weekend was really important for me to do something on Saturday or Sunday morning. And uh, yeah, it um, the 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 continuous and, and pre scheduled um, it, it, keeping that consistency. Gosh, it, you've been consistent with with publishing videos. It, it gets people coming back. It becomes appointment television. And that's something that that has been important for me to to be that voice that's there that folks can depend on and come back to. Uh, that, that's awesome. Yeah, Twitch is way better at um, helping people visualize your schedule as a streamer. It has this very nice sort of calendar view. Yeah. And as long as you can stick to that, like we don't really have that on YouTube, you can schedule it and people can get like notify me. Uh, but even notifications sure. is very weird in YouTube. It, it's interesting the difference in streaming between the two platforms. And <clears throat> you're right, Twitch being completely live focused, they want that schedule in front of you. They want to get you a notification when folks go live. But you can't get Twitch on smart TVs easily. You can't get it on some devices. It's an extra app to go and find for your phone or your tablet. It, it, it's not as ubiquitous as YouTube is, just everywhere. But yeah. then there's the difference in the chat experiences. It's it's interesting. It those are <laughs> those are all topics I find intriguing as well, and I have my own experiences with um, what I what I like and don't like. We're gonna talk about that definitely. Uh, <laughs> but I actually want to take it a, a bit um, back and say I was looking at at your career progression, starting as a developer and then working for Telerik and then from Telerik moving into Microsoft. And you've been yeah. there now for the better part of eight years and a bit. Yep. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, eight and, years. It'll be nine in November for me. And 10 is when you get the, is there a plaque that you get a 10? So there's a there's a crystal trophy that you, that you, can, you can opt to receive every five years. Um, so five years, there was a, there's a little blue crystal that you get at, at 10, I think it's a larger yellow crystal, 15, there's another one. And at 20, there's actually crystals in the, um, in the conference center. When you go, if you go attend a conference like, like VS live or, or some other event at Microsoft, there's a briefing center. That's a conference center on campus. And there's these very large, three foot tall, very thick crystals. All the employees who've worked 20 years, their names are etched on those crystals. That's pretty cool. Yeah, right? Like I'd be, I'd be really interested to see who's there from the people I know. Yeah. 
you know, visible right. Microsoft employees like you, like David, like Scott, um, they don't really leave Microsoft. You, you folks just stay. There's, it, it, when I think about what would be involved for me to leave Microsoft, it, so much of my, my brand identity is tied to these products. If I were to go somewhere else and work on similar products, uh, how much of that am I changing? Am I redoing? Um, I don't know. I, I, I feel like my vision, what I want to do, what I want to engage with folks in chat. How you doing there, chat? I, I am watching the chat room. Um, it, what I want to do is encourage folks to, to be successful. And I get it. I, I have such a great voice and platform with the Microsoft tools and products that, okay, I, I, there's, there's a very small list of things that I can't work with because they're competitors. Okay. But I can pretty much do what I want to work with our products to help encourage folks to, to improve, to, to do better, to grow their careers. And, and that really, that lights me up. So. That's yeah. I mean, that is sick. The biggest highs that I used to get when I was working full time and now it's a different story, but seeing your product being used and then yes. taking that feedback and applying it on the product to make it better and then see people happy there's nothing better than this in my opinion oh my gosh the the when, when folks eyes light up oh my gosh you just showed me something your product just gave me something that is going to save me hours that i'm going to take back to the the project team at the office and we're going to be able to do something really cool with this phenomenal uh uh just it, reaction and it it makes me feel like i delivered the right product i i wrote the right content i i answered questions i i shared sample code that solved a problem and, and at the end of the day that's what we're all doing just trying to solve problems for folks yeah awesome so you are officially untitled <laughs> a principal program manager uh for microsoft yes. You're mm -hmm. also the executive producer for the .NET Conf, which we had a couple of months ago, where yep. celebrating the launch of .NET 6, oh, sorry, .NET 7. Um, but you've also worked, that wasn't always obviously what you were doing. You worked on no. products like NuGet, ASP.NET, mm -hmm. uh, um, mm -hmm. and before you were the executive producer, you were also one of the three producers of .NET Conf, right? Yep. So qu quite, um, quite the story here because while you were doing all that, you also managed to build an audience on Twitch, live coding yep. and building an application mm -hmm. on the wild. So you've been doing that for five years now, since November 2017. Yeah. And amounted 21,000 followers on Twitch and an average viewership of 153 people given the stats I can see on, on Twitch tracker. So, yeah. you know, obviously you have a family as well. Mm -hmm. it, to me, it's always like people ask me, how do you manage to do everything that you do, Nick? But the truth is like people like you was always like my question, how these people with high positions that me, how did they manage to do that and the family? Because I, I don't have kids. I don't have anything. So uh, for me, it's way easier. Like, how do you balance all that? It's tricky. <laughs> um, I work from home, so I there's no commute, I, right? I just walk into my, my spare bedroom here and I, I've turned this into a home studio over the years. 
Um, it's something that um, planning my time is important. Um, when we talked about um, live streaming, the big thing for me is, has been that consistency. Tuesdays, Thursdays, weekends, whenever it might be, having that time blocked on my schedule. And when I'm not live streaming, I, I'm going to find maybe an hour or two outside of that to work on things for the live stream, whether it's build samples, write a script for things, um, and and grind through and and build what I need for that. And then the reuse game kicks in. Um, my my manager, when I worked at, at Telerik, when I first got into developer advocacy and promoting promoting product use, was reuse as much as possible. Don't write content and use it just once. Use it at least three times. So things that you see me do on a live stream, I repackage as a presentation that I'll deliver at a dev intersection, a VS Live, whatever conference it might be. I'll, I'll summarize some of that content and I'll push it into a blog post. DevTO, Code Project, my own blog, wherever, it, it, Microsoft blog. So I'm not reinventing myself. I'm not going in and building new content all the time. I build new content over the course of the week and then reuse it for the better part of the next week or so or the next month. Um, I, I was in a... In a a, a process and a grind where every December I would write, here's the presentations I want to give in the next year. And I might get some initial slide concepts put together, but for the job that I was doing then, it was, it, it was constantly tuning, rebuilding and delivering talks. I wasn't even thinking about building YouTube videos. It was, it, it was, let's just put together what this talk is going to be and I'll tune and add features as new product comes out, as as new uh, things happen out on the web or whatever. And it, it was a way for me to to manage and push down the amount of content that I was constantly writing by just evolving the same content again and again and again. Well, that's effectively what I'm still doing. So I, I, I do try to keep a... a tight schedule where 8 a.m., 9 a.m., my time, that's when I'm going to start. I start my day and I get out to about 5, and that's the end of my day. Um, the folks that I work with know this. They see when my schedule starts and stops. It, Nick, I had to put, I, I had to block time on my schedule for dinner because I had people scheduling meetings because they're on, they're on the West Coast. They're three hours behind me. They're scheduling meetings when I should be eating dinner. I'm like, well, that's not right. So then the, the, the smart folks that I work with said, well, I'm just going to schedule an hour to meet with Jeff after dinner. Uh, that's not going to work either. So I started blocking, okay, dinner and then, then Fritz evening for two hours. And if you want to talk to me after that, 8 p.m. my time, you better have a really good reason. And I'm going to reject most of them. But every now and again, something comes up and I need to have a conversation. Then The weird things happen when when there's a meeting with executive folks and they schedule it for midnight my time because it's 9 p.m. their time and they're talking to folks overseas and I'm like, you want me to have a meeting at midnight? Like, <laughs> I, I'll gently push back like, are, are you sure? And nine times out of ten, okay, we can work with that. But reusing content is is really my key. And... 
um, something that I've struggled with and, and had a great conversation with folks after my stream yesterday is I had great conversations on stream. We did something really cool. How do I summarize that into 5, 10, 15 minute YouTube video and republish? It almost feels like I need to re-record and then I get into the editing game. It's like, do I really want to be spending my time doing that? Okay, I can hire an editor to do those things, but it's how can I get more folks to do more things to help me so I can focus on either building content, planning events, these types of things. The, the interesting thing about how you approach streaming and like full disclosure, I'm a huge Twitch fan. Like if, if I could be streaming on Twitch, I would exclusively. Um, well, ideally, Twitch would have a better partner program and I could stream in both places at the same time, but they don't allow that, so I had to choose. Um, technically, I still can if I'm not affiliate or I'm not a partner, whatever. Yeah. The problem is that I don't want to be moderating two chats because a YouTube chat and Twitch chat is very different. And, and we can talk about that in a second, but the, re the reason why I bring it up is because most Twitch streamers, successful ones, actually plan their stream in a way that it can be chopped off to be a YouTube video or multiple videos. Mm -hmm. So you see people like Ludwig, uh, not so much XQC, but like Miskif or whatever, like Asmongold. Mm -hmm. um, they they plan it in a way that their editors, while they're streaming, download it, oh, yeah. chop it, it goes on YouTube, and just thousands mm -hmm. of views. Um, and you don't really do that. I've seen YouTube videos and I think it was VOD at the beginning as it was yeah. uncut. And then you tried, I think I saw some minimal API stuff. Yep. Um, very, tried to get that very scripted. Yeah, and... very scripted, like teaching, sort of lecture type of situation. Um, but not the, oh, I, I planned the stream to be a YouTube video. Yeah. Here's the YouTube yeah. video. And what I've found, it, it, let's back up for a second. Folks do try to multi-stream. There are a couple folks that do multi-stream. Right, and they'll syndicate out to both YouTube and Twitch. They haven't been caught yet, but the the flip side of being caught is Twitch hasn't enforced it either. It's right. clearly in our in our contracts that you can't do this. And for a while, when I first started streaming, um, I I got a gentle tap on the shoulder from some folks on the Xbox team. They said, "It'd be really nice if you streamed on Mixer." okay, are you okay if I multi-stream to Mixer and Twitch? That was an experience. I used a product called Restream to yep. target both. And the the problem, the problem with Mixer became clear the more and more I used it. Um, and I, we don't need to talk about Mixer, but it, we, we could see them slowly getting, it, things weren't succeeding for them. Um, but there are folks that do multi-stream to YouTube and Twitch. I do that with my, um, with my Monday morning streams I do on the Visual Studio channel. It's on the .NET channel here on YouTube. The, the trick there is we negotiated a brand, uh, brand channel with the folks at Twitch. So while it's, it is a partner channel and has all the benefits of partner, commercials still run on it. Um, it, it does get all the, uh, the transcoding features on Twitch, um, but I can multi-stream when I'm on that channel. Fine, no big deal. Um, and 
managing the chat between the two is crazy. There's definitely a different culture, I'll say, between the two services. Um, and that's that's a whole nother discussion. I, I've tried doing the let's build a segment. Let's do 15, 20 minutes. We're going to focus on just this. But the the essence of live streaming, the whole reason I got into live streaming, the discussion with the chat room inevitably just sweeps me up and I get into that discussion and what was going to be 10, 15 minutes on topic A ends up being, you know what? There's a really good idea here from, from Skippy in chat. And let's take a look at that. And 15 minutes turns into 20 minutes, turns into 25 minutes with a really good discussion in there with chat. And what I've learned the hard way is folks on YouTube hate when you talk to chat. If you're looking at a YouTube video and, and the presenter is talking to chat, they can't stand it. I've literally had people write into my comments, this guy needs to be fired because he's not addressing and discussing the content. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, even when I open up the video with, hey, this is a discussion. I'm talking to chat. You're watching a recording check out the live chat and I'm going to have the live chat on screen so you can see what I'm addressing and talking to folks on YouTube are like, no, I don't want to see this. This is two hours of discussion and answering these deep questions on topics. No, don't want that. Like, Oh, okay. That's, that's part of that culture difference. And I get it. I do. Which, which is interesting because that is the reason why I personally don't like for my streams to do live coding because I like the interaction with chat, chat asks questions, but I never, you know, you, you've been in clip talk and we're going to go there as well. Oh, sure. Um, but um, I can't be building a product that we, maybe I'm not capable enough. I don't know, but I can't be building a product and also try to keep a conversation with, with chat and do both equally well. So I choose to, focus on trivial program um, problems or, you know, let's chat GPTs out. Let's go play around. <laughs> yeah. What what can it going to do? And then you can have a discussion with chat and then it's fantastic. Um, so, okay, let, let's talk about that, right? Yeah. By taking those bite-sized bits, hey, let's just focus on doing this one thing and being kind of heads down and, and focusing on that. Yeah, you get through that task pretty well. Folks get to watch it and see and understand that. And then you can back off and answer questions and talk for a little bit. That's a fantastic model to go after. And to your point earlier, makes it very editable and reusable as a YouTube video or something in the future. Even even TikTok content. And oh, don't get me started on TikTok content. Oh no, I will get you started because I have something oh. to say on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I got into streaming because I wanted to force those conversations with folks in the community. I was blogging. I, I was I was the guy who was writing the blog posts for the .NET team. Hey, look, we've got Visual Basic working with .NET Core. Woo, okay. And then I waited for a couple days to see responses, comments on the blog posts. And it, it three days later, five days later, getting a response to a blog post I wrote a week and a half prior, but it was only published at the beginning of this week, was frustrating because the conversation ended up being drug out and, and 
missed the point and there were even folks coming back and commenting weeks later and we'd already moved on and the next thing was happening and i, I really got to go back and talk about that friends of mine say that that live streaming live coding the way i do is my adhd personified i haven't been diagnosed with adhd but when you when you have all these bells and whistles and alerts and things going off and chat talking and pausing and talking to them my lord it is distracting. That said, though, there's a respect that I have for the chat room because they've taken time to tune in, to join, to ask questions that I, I make it a point that every person who's in chat, I don't care if you've got a purple check mark next to your name because you're a partner. I don't care if you've got nothing next to your name because it's the first time you're tuning in. I'm going to give you the respect of reading your message. I might read it out loud, and I'm going to acknowledge you. One way or the other, I'm going to acknowledge you and, and make sure that you feel part of whatever project it is that I'm working on or code that I'm tweaking or, or whatever it might be. It's... That, and that's just something that, that I set from the get-go. And when I tune in and watch other folks who don't look at chat at all, or they only read chat for folks that paid the five bucks for a, a super chat entry to pop up on screen, I, I get it. When you get to a certain size, you can't, you just can't engage with everybody. And that's what moderators help with. But it's... The, it, that's what I feel is important is fostering and encouraging that community. And it, it served me well. I've, I've been able to help other streamers, other folks that want to get into this. It, it absolutely is hard to focus and do some of that stuff while writing code. Totally is. But the flip side of that is if we were working in an office and you were sitting in a cube, you'd have people stopping by. Hey, Jeff, did you see the thing? I was working on and this doesn't quite work right and you have to go through that but on the flip side also is hey nick i was looking at this thing over here writing a custom attribute do you know how to and you can jump in and comment and encourage that to me is the power of live coding and live streaming sometimes and i see that mostly on other people's chat because obviously you don't want to be mean to your chat it's your viewers right but there's yeah. a lot of like backseat coding going on especially in That's emails a... um yes chat, chat rooms as yes. if i i know better I'm, I'm i'll tell you i see that a lot it's horrible it's terrible when i'm when i'm on somebody's channel and somebody starts doing that if if they've given me the VIP rights, moderator rights, I'm I'm going to let them get out one, maybe two statements, and then I'm going to, hey, buddy, let's let them let's let them go through and discover here. It's okay to say, you know, there's a, there's a problem here you might need to fix, or you know, oh, I saw this before. I have a link to a blog post or some docs that can help you out with this. It's okay to do that, but to go through and say. In, in really backseat code. Oh gosh, this is a terrible way to do these things. You should never be 
why would you choose to do this? I had somebody questioning the use of my spaces in my code. Like, go away. Like, sorry. Um, it's, we need to encourage more folks that are, that are not men. Um, and quite frankly, folks who are not North American men, um, to get involved with, with, this type of media there's so much that you can do but i also appreciate and understand that there's a huge investment to make this happen i've, I've got lights and soundproofing and we've we've both got it looks like we've both got the same microphone here and cameras and all it's it's a lot to get started you don't need all of it to get started but yeah we need to encourage and support the rest of our community and that's that's another piece to to the live coding that i've made sure to step up and continue to do i don't just produce and walk away i go and hang out in other people's channels listen and jump in appropriately at other times i want to take it back a little bit because it's good to you know now see me live streaming a podcast and you live streaming building clip talk um sure. but how and why did you start all those years ago because i'm not even quite sure if software development was a category on twitch i think it was under creative back then wasn't it it was um so when i started back way back then um i i had spoken to a couple friends at uh, at a few conferences about how frustrated i was with blogging and and how i spent all this time in in writing and i was told it's funny. I was told when I was in, in high school that I was not a very good writer. I was not a strong writer of essays and, and other content. Um, and I, I published a book. I was writing blog posts for, for the largest software company in the world. It was something that I wasn't comfortable doing, but I figured out how to do. And I, I missed the engagement of talking and hanging out with folks. So I... I started talking to some people and, and getting the mindset of I had produced a bunch of videos for Pluralsight and Wintelect now, and even for Microsoft. Hey, why don't I do a podcast? I can get reaction a little bit faster on that. Podcasting is a thing. Um, and a couple folks that produce some very large podcasts even said to me at the time, oh my gosh, you'd be for fantastic doing a podcast. You've, you've got the voice for it. You've got the attitude. You've got the interview chops. You've hosted panels at various events. This would be great. And, and a friend of mine at a local regional conference here in the, in the Pennsylvania, New York region, uh, her name is Suze Hinton. Um, she said to me, why don't you try live streaming, this concept of live coding? And it was, it was under creative at the time. And, and she explained, you just get on and you work on an open source project or something. You answer questions and chat and you get into it. But you do all those things that you would be talking about and doing on a podcast, plus writing code, and you get the immediate interaction. And I, I liked the idea initially. I thought it was a little bit more of a stretch. And, and thinking about not having a producer or an editor it scared me at first. So I, I, took, I took a weekend in November and um, just tried it out. It was, it was a holiday weekend, the American Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, let's give it a shot and see what happens. 
I, I, I had no production quality out there. You can, my video from that is still here on YouTube. You can find that over on my channel if you want to laugh at something. And, and I went through and I think I had three viewers the whole time. And even though it was only three viewers, I fell in love with the medium and it became something that, um, I realized and understood I can encourage folks and get that immediate feedback. And the, the key thing for me in those initial streams that Sue's uh, communicated was using an open source project as the vehicle. Because not only then was I showing the code on screen, but when I would commit to GitHub, the viewers could pull down the source code, ask questions on issues or in chat, could publish pull requests. And when you get a pull request from somebody who's watching your stream during stream, such a huge bit of feedback that's encouraging and helps in a, in, in a way that is very similar to working with a, a project team at whatever organization. So it felt amazing. And shortly after that, uh, Twitch uh, awarded me affiliate status in January, 2018. And I was hooked. I, I, oh my gosh, I got to keep doing this. This is great. And, and just had a blast with it. So. So five years later, and obviously being very passionate about it, and I'm assuming you still are, because if you weren't, you wouldn't be doing it. Oh yeah. Would you say that you, it's something you'd be doing full time? That's the, that's the million dollar question, right? That's, is, is this something? Because for me, it's not whether you could financially, financially, I'm sure you could. It's would the novelty of it just fade away because now you're doing it five, four, six hours a day. So the, the flip side of would the novelty go away is. I'm already creating content and meeting with people and talking to them, whether it's, it's customers, it's product teams, um, and doing effectively the same things I would be doing on a live stream, whether, it, so would I lose the novelty of it? I might go into different topics. I might go into different genres. I might not do just software. I might, I might play games every now and again. I'm, um, figure out ways to do more interview shows. I stopped doing interview shows, uh, uh, two, three years ago. It was, it, it's now something I rarely do just because it's, it's something that I wanted to focus on, on development. I wanted to focus on building something and pivoting to building a project and having something that. I can, I can clearly say, okay, here's where we picked up from. Here's where we left off from last time and moving forward with it. Um, it, that more than just having, having a, a set of topics that I want to talk about, but having a project that I can point to and grow and folks can use. That's something that, that feeds me, feeds my spirit in a way that, that allows me to continue to appreciate the novelty of working and in a live coding experience and answering questions and engaging folks because there's always something different and new to do with the project. 
Um, I, I look at another live coder, Lana Lux on, on Twitch, doing an amazing job for three, four, five years. She's been building games with Unity and .NET. And she's publishing, about to publish the first game that she started building back in quarantine. She, it's, it's, uh, there's a version out on Steam. She's got a Kickstarter going for it. And because she streams, I mean, she streams every day. And that's her full-time gig. And, and she's growing this game and she's going to sell the game. She's got a, a fantastic community of viewers that engage and want to see the game succeed, want to see that product do well. She's in that same, very much that, that boat of being able to do things professionally for a long period of time. There's, there, there's side things that you can do with that to, to definitely diversify the content you're building. It, cut and create YouTube videos, push stuff over to TikTok so that you, you do break up a little bit of the monotony. Having that dedicated project that's always different each day and you're not doing the same thing all the time, I think makes it more interesting and would make it more compelling to do long-term. Is that something I could do for a 10-year career? I don't know. Um, I, I, I have family in going into college at this point that, that I'm helping pay for. You know what? Uh, we're not going to be considering that <laughs> for a while. <laughs> it's, it's just not there. So, yeah. Okay. okay. You want to take a minute or two and answer some of the questions in chat? Um, usually we don't do that unless it's directly relevant to what we're talking about now. So if anyone has a question that is, if you've spotted something that you want to address, by all means, uh, do so. Um, but generally for the podcast, because this is also an audio form later on Spotify and Apple podcasts, unless it's directly applicable, we don't address so, it now. I want to go to this one question from uh, Triple E in chat asking, why doesn't Microsoft spend a little promotion money on supporting creators to make content for Azure DevOps? Um, it's a good question. And quite frankly, I don't work with that group that is uh, engaging folks to, to promote and encourage Azure DevOps. We, I have been um, engaging and promoting and, and helping get folks who, who make YouTube videos, Twitch content, um, TikTok videos. We've been finding influencers and encouraging and and helping some of those folks create more content. We have a, a very vibrant MVP program that folks are are getting material from us and they're able to go and build ahead of time because we give them a little inside knowledge, build content and be ready to write books, videos, blog content. And the folks like Nick get access to that, some of that stuff and can do really cool things and provide feedback back to the team. And I know that's something the .NET team really likes hearing from, from folks like Nick that helps us long-term. So if the Azure DevOps folks aren't doing that, that's something that, that we can nudge and see if we can, we can help out with. Absolutely. Since you touched on that say no comment, to. uh, because there's a, there's the end sentence that you left out potentially intentionally because it mentions uh, a competitor. Um, and of course, yeah. if you don't want to answer what I'm about to answer, it's absolutely fine. Um, but the reason why Triple uh, E mentions that is because AWS fully sponsored um, an, an introduction to AWS for C-Sharp developers course. 
um, so I can provide for free for everyone. Mm -hmm. And I'll be very open about my experience. Um, AWS is extremely easy and open, and actually they proactively reach out. Influencers mm -hmm. don't have to reach out to AWS. Uh, when I tried to use that as an opportunity to make a counter course or a, 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 a pair course for Azure, same services, mm -hmm. but the Azure services, uh, it was extremely hard to, I was basically thrown around like a ping pong ball. No, I don't deal with this. Go here, go here, go here. And at the end, people said just message called Hanselman. And I'm not about to message called Hanselman to, like I can, but I'm not going to message him to see who's going to sponsor an Azure. So I think there's a huge communication gap um in in Azure DevRel, uh in my opinion, on in in the way that it's not a problem with um with AWS. And so maybe that's just feedback you can, you know, take with the team. I, I very much appreciate that feedback. And something that um I know folks have seen is that a lot of the a lot of the people who were doing .NET Azure DevRel actually went and are doing that now for AWS. So we've had significant turnover there and the folks who would be enabled and engaged and ready to do that aren't fully, um, how do I want to say this? They aren't, they aren't fully comfortable with that level of engagement yet. Um, absolutely. It, there's, there's folks like myself, uh, James Montemagno, John Galloway, that want to that want to encourage influencers, want to help folks build great content to show off. .NET, Visual Studio, Azure. Um, please reach out. We're happy to talk to folks and and get get folks pointed in the right direction to to continue to in, in, encourage and and help people do more, develop better solutions. We're we're not going to say no, but I definitely hear there are marketing folks, there are sales folks that don't understand how to engage this community. So, yeah, that's that's really good to hear. Um, and yeah, I can reach out to one of those people. I'm I'm pretty sure at least one of those names I did reach out, but we're not going to go more in depth into that. Um, okay. You mentioned this sort of. I imagine it as like a the core or the anchor point for your live stream. And that is like a long-term project. And in your case, mm. that is ClipTalk, which yeah. for those of you in chat, I'm gonna give a quick description. Um, when you're live streaming on Twitch uh, and there's a highlight that you wanna share to other people or just save, you can create what's called a clip. And the clip can be, you know, three to, I don't know how many seconds it can be. But it's basically just uh, a new object, imagine it, which is an object in this array of minutes that you have. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can then reshare it. Uh, but that's really only visible in that person's profile. So to find it, you have to be looking for it. It's not something yep. you can really discover. And one of the biggest problems with um, Twitch is actually discoverability. If you're a small yep. channel, it's impossible to grow. And any big creator on Twitch will tell you if you want to build a Twitch presence, start on YouTube and then redirect those YouTube subscribers to Twitch because YouTube does have an amazing algorithm. Um, and what Jeff has done is he's built this project which sort of leverages the whole clip functionality on Twitch. And then with Microsoft and not not only Microsoft technology, because mm -hmm. we've seen things like RavenDB, for example, um, you've built this 
platform to share and uh, clips and make them discoverable, sort of boosting yep. channels organically, um, which is which is a fantastic product, and that is built with Blazor, yes. which makes you, at least in my eyes, uh, the most visible Microsoft employee and the most visible Microsoft product, even though it's not a Microsoft product, but you know the, the way it comes across given you're an employee, uh, using Blazor, because one of the biggest things I hear all the time is, if Blazor is so good, why is Microsoft not building I don't know, Bing without like, or Azure without it, um, mm -hmm. or with it, sorry. Um, so tell me a little bit about Cliptalk. Like, how how did the idea come about, and uh, what how's your experience been for the past few years that you've been building this? So you're absolutely right. Clips on on Twitch, they're a discovery mechanism. They're that highlight about a minute of video that you want to be able to share. You want to publish it on Twitter. You want to publish it out on on Facebook. LinkedIn, do, do people publish short videos like that? I don't know. Um, but right, it, it's a discovery mechanism. And what I was seeing back in 2020, when, when I first was thinking about the project was, how do, what, what do I do with my clips? How do I publish them and get them somewhere so more folks can discover them? What I had, what I had seen, I, I run, um, every now and again, I'll run theme months where I've got a, right, a, a type of technology that I'll focus on. And during one of my theme months in March that I call Minimal March, I, I write all my .NET code at the command line. No editors allowed. So I did a couple clips where I showed how I set up uh, um, .NET to run on a Chromebook. And in in doing that on Twitch, grabbing those clips, I embedded those clips with instructions on my blog. And to your point, discoverability on Twitch comes from somewhere else. YouTube's a great mechanism for it. TikTok's a great mechanism for it. For our communities, for our developer communities, blogs and places where folks search for code are great places to discover our content. So embedding a clip there or embedding a clip on GitHub, huge easily the most viewed clips that I had had at the point. I was like, oh my gosh, how do I get more of these out there somewhere? And another creator on Twitch, um, he he's on YouTube and he bounces back and forth now. A guy named Harris Heller. Uh, look at me, I'm dropping names like you're going out of style. <laughs> it talked about, wouldn't it be great if we had Twitch clips in a TikTok-like format so you could go through them real quick? What a great idea. And... Um, I had heard rumors that Twitch had looked at something like that in the past and it was quickly canned because very much the focus of the, the Twitch executives are live content. Everything's live and you can, you can see that in the culture and the way the product is developed. But how do we get this discoverability out there? And at that time, Azure Static Websites was, was coming online and folks were talking about, hey, this is really cool. You can build a Blazor app that runs on WebAssembly and have your Azure functions kind of run next to it in the same app. And it, just like you said, I thought we don't have a, a big sample application out there that folks can point to and say, that's made with Blazor. That's pretty cool. That's a thing that... I can, I, I can relate to. I can tell you 
that in the time since then, there are a number of other Microsoft products that are being built and, and will be deployed with Blazor that you won't even know are running with Blazor, but they're coming. Um, and, and there are a number of internal sites that all use Blazor. We even have an internal um, Blazor interest group that, that meets on teams and talks about ways that we can use Blazor throughout the company. All that said, what's the public facing thing? So in, in thinking of, I want to build a project on stream that's going to last a, a long period of time. And I want to make my clips more discoverable. And I want to make Blazor a little bit more high profile. That's where ClipTalk kind of came together. So um, it was mid-November. I said, let's, let's take a 12-hour stream. In 12 hours of live coding and streaming, that's a haul. That's a lot of time. Um, <laughs> let's let's build just an initial Blazor static website. I'm, I'm going to grab the IDs for a half dozen clips. And let's see if we can just get them to appear on screen, TikTok-like fashion, and be able to scroll through them. And um, setting some initial goals, some initial capabilities that I wanted to have... It, it worked out well. Um, it was something that that I found interest in. It, it, it delivered what I wanted. And iterating on that and, and taking the approach and talking to, to my management chain and saying, this is something that I'm building here. I want to maintain the IP for this. Even though it's going to demonstrate and show off all these Microsoft things, I'd like to maintain the IP. I'm going to use lots of Azure features so that you get both. I'm going to have lots of feedback on Blazor, lots of feedback on Azure and other .NET versions that come along. And, and I can talk more about that and <laughs> what happened yesterday. Um, it's, it's been able to feed and get, get feedback into the, the Blazor team. I've had conversations with Steve Sanderson and Dan Roth about things that work well on ClipTalk and things that don't work well that they hadn't considered because they're not building and, and seeing applications that are managing hundreds of gigs of data, pushing videos in front of folks, video players. How do we do that? How do I put that into a Maui app to make it into a mobile experience? And the conversations I've had now with the Maui team around some of those things have made the evolution of ClipTalk over the last two years something that has become valuable and interesting to to folks. I was at .NET Conf and and producing. I'm you may have seen me during .NET Conf. I was behind the window in studio and watching and moderating. And I um I had Clip Talk up on a second screen there because as things were happening during .NET Conf, I would take a clip on Twitch and put it into a playlist on Clip Talk. So there's a playlist there that you can go through and see. .NET Conf highlights, and that was something that I was doing. Well, David Fowler walks off stage, and I'm tweaking something in code because something's not performing quite right, and we're in between segments. And he's looking at it and asking, what's this you're building? And I explain to him and give him the two-minute pitch of what it is. And he got real interested in how I was using functions and caching and deploying and managing Something that's not just another ASP.NET Core website that's a, a blog or a, a shopping cart app or one of these typical types of 
applications that folks see, but something that's, quite frankly, borderline social media. How do we do that? How do we, how do we support that scale and do some of the cool things with that? And and it raises questions, and it and there's there's techniques and things that we learn from building something and maintaining something of size that as a community manager, I can spend my time doing and turn some of that experience into, just like I was saying earlier, into conference sessions, into blog posts that then other folks learn from and we can do cool things with. So it's, it's been quite the experience and, and drawing that separation has, has proven very valuable to not just the folks at Microsoft that I'm working with, but other folks that say, hey, I have a technology that I'd like you to show off. Can you, can you try using Raven? What about, hey, we have these Telerik components for Blazor. You want to try using those that we can probably save you a lot of time with that. Hey, I have a product that does transcription. There might be something cool you can do with that. And bringing all of that together and showing off some of those features and using them and integrating at scale like that has provided a lot of value for everybody involved. The problem with good ideas that are, or good products that are parasitic in nature in the sense that they depend on a shock and you're sort of the fish around the shark that just helps. Sure. Um, I don't know what's the actual biology analogy, but um, sort of get the point is that the shark might eat you at the end of the day. And I was recently reading the open letter from Twitch for 2023. Mm -hmm. And at the bottom, they alluded that they're planning to use clips and sort of add similar functionality as ClipTalk has mm -hmm. built into Twitch, mm -hmm. which would sort of make ClipTalk obsolete. What do you think about this relationship and what does that mean for ClipTalk? So I've been talking directly to Twitch about this product since even before I built it in 2020. They know I've been building it. I've watched Twitch staff come in and hang out in my stream and watch me build ClipTalk. I'm fully aware that they are seeing what's happening and and have been in no small part uh, influenced by that. Um, I've also seen that ClipTalk has about 12 other competitors out there, 12 to 15 other competitors, depending on how you look at what value ClipTalk delivers. I can tell you that most of these folks that are building what I'll term as competitors, um, they've made terrible architecture decisions. They've decided to build and do things that quite frankly led to the failure of their company. I'm talking about you, Hover GG. Um, <laughs> where ClipTalk is focused on not so much delivering videos, but delivering connections to videos, delivering content that makes folks more interested in other content. I've looked at other products that Twitch has built and delivered over the last five years. I've had a relationship with them. As a, as a partnered streamer with them, I do get access to some of their planning, some of their folks, sooner than, than, than typical streamers or viewers. Um, I've, I've delivered presentations for Twitch. I've taught a workshop at TwitchCon. Um, and I've got a very good relationship with their folks. 
they know that um, most of the folks in our communities, and, and I'm referring to Twitch streamer communities, not just developer communities, um, we don't like the products that they have brought forth to try and compete with other established vendors in, in the market that they've created. Um, great example of that is they built a, um, a charity subscription feature. So you can wire up and, and run charity focused content on Twitch, connecting through Twitch and PayPal to be able to raise money for organizations. Fantastic idea. There's another vendor in the space called Tiltify. Tiltify has been around for a very long time. And Tiltify has been working very closely with some very, very large um, charity organizations. And what these folks have established in a relationship through Tiltify is a level of trust and a level of um, integration that Tiltify provides. Whether you're streaming on YouTube or Twitch or Facebook, doesn't matter. Tiltify has provided a very trustworthy connection through to these organizations that, quite frankly, Twitch and their business partner, PayPal, does not deliver, does not, um, does not encourage, does not put a, a brand, a face on things that folks can trust because of problems folks have had with PayPal in the past, problems folks have had with, with, with content and direction on Twitch. There's a trust there that isn't 100%. And quite frankly, folks that I speak to around a charity organization that I work with, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, we're going to continue working with Tiltify because of that established relationship, because of that level of trust and integration that's already built. So when Twitch comes along and says, oh, we're going to add this other feature here so you can scroll through and watch clips inside your Twitch app, that's, that's nice. Do you appreciate just how little people use the Twitch mobile app? Do you appreciate how little um, that that Twitch mobile app is encouraging to folks to click through to other streams and how hard it is to get between those? Do they appreciate the amount of power that that Twitch app brings where folks don't stream using the, that app? They use other apps instead, like Streamlabs. They don't, um, they, they don't appreciate that when you're using the Twitch app, your phone gets hot because it's not using battery and components effectively. Folks don't really trust their mobile experience right now. So, um, is Twitch coming into the space? Sure. Are they going to do well? I don't know. Do I, does it affect me? Sure. They're never going to build the features that I have. They aren't. They just aren't. Would it be beneficial to them to partner with me? Absolutely. Okay. Have I have I discussed that with them? Them and several other other organizations. And folks have said, you know what? We're not quite there with features yet. But if Twitch is moving into the space, okay. Now there's something interesting to discuss. Now it gets a little bit more intriguing. And now some of those differenti differentiator features that we've built on ClipTalk become much more interesting. You obviously don't have to answer this, but um, if if Twitch came along and they said, you obviously have the know-how, you understand the community, you understand the platform, here's this bag, 
come over lead the team who builds this feature. And now you're no longer a Microsoft employee, you're, you're a Twitch employee. Mm -hmm. I, I understand this is an extremely hard question to answer. So if you don't want to answer it, don't do that. But would you be even entertaining that idea? If that's something easier to answer. My goal continues to be to encourage folks to to learn, grow their careers, and do more. Um, and and that's something that I value very much with my my time with Microsoft, and and why I really enjoy running .NET Conf. Um, if another organization offered to to bring me over and and continue to build ClipTalk, and I can continue to achieve those goals. Um, I think all of us in the tech industry, it, it, we work for money. We, we have family to, to take care of. We have homes to, to pay for. If, if somebody's going to offer me more money to do the same thing or more, it's going to be a hard decision to, to leave Microsoft and do that. Um, I'm not going to say, yes, I'm absolutely going to do that, but I'm also not going to say no. It's going to be a tough decision for me to make because I do really enjoy what I do. Um, if, if, if the price was right, absolutely. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't even be a thought. Um, but right now, I don't know. I, there's, there's things going on in the tech industry, a lot of uncertainty that I, I wouldn't want to be swept up in. Um, I'm very comfortable where I am, and some folks say that comfort in your career is a bad thing. Um, so I don't know. I, it would be it would be a tough decision to make. It, I I work with a fantastic group of folks. Um, I yeah, it would be a tough decision. And if if that bag of money was the right size, Nick, I I, I wouldn't say no. Um, so. I. I appreciate the answer is sometimes people ask me, you know, you make YouTube videos, you have your courses, you have whatever, um, you run workshops. Would you ever work as a DevRel for a company? Mm -hmm. And like, well, I have the best of bo both worlds because I can choose who I work with. Like, I get tens of, you know, maybe hundreds of emails a month to sponsor products and work with companies. I'm very picky about it, of course, because I have to believe in the product to promote it. Okay. Uh, but if the price was right, sure, I would I would be open to getting hired by by a company. So yeah, I appreciate uh, the honesty on on that. And to be frank, that's exactly the question that I got when I decided to go work for Telerik. And when I left Telerik and I went to Microsoft, it was you're a software developer now at company XYZ, and you're giving presentations at all these locations for free whether it's a code camp or a small regional conference, um, how'd you like to get paid to do that? And at the time, I, I had two small kids, uh, what, three and five. You know what? It's going to increase my compensation, going to give me a little bit of security around that, and I get to do the things that I like. Sounded like a good match for me when I started. And then when the opportunity came along for me to join Microsoft, it was, you're doing all the things that we're doing at similar events, and you're doing it better than some of our folks. Would you be interested in joining and doing that? And when, 
when one of the fang companies comes to you, right, one of the top 10 tech companies in the world comes to you and says, we'd like you to represent us, right? And I make, I make no bones about it. I know in the back of my head, I represent a, a company valued at more than a trillion dollars. Holy smokes. I'm a spokesperson for, for Microsoft. Are you kidding me? That's amazing. That's always in the back of my mind. And that's, that's why, right? I, you, you hear me during this conversation, I pause and make sure I, I get things right in my head before I talk about it. But that's, that's the top of the hill. That's the top of the mountain. Would I love to do like you're doing, be able to broadcast and, and set my own pace and take sponsors when I'd like to, to build and deliver content? Sure, absolutely. That would be so much fun. Uh, but I'm a I'm at a I'm at a point in my life where there's a security that comes with where I am that I'm not prepared to give up. You know, um, I I can create that content and I I can't do it as as prolifically. Is is that a word that I did I make that up? I think I made that up. But hey, I, I, I I don't know. Anything you say is right <laughs> by me. <laughs> but I I feel like. There's there's always opportunities to to create more uh, live content to turn some of that summarize in a five ten minute video and, and pitch over to YouTube. I'm not going to be able to do it as quickly and regularly, and it it's it's not the the first thing on my agenda. But it's something when I want to, I can certainly put something together to deliver out there. But I, I yeah, it, being being hooked on to a company to do these things that, that we enjoy doing, engaging and talking to communities and helping folks. Um, it's very comfortable when you have a family. Yeah, I understand. Have you ever felt, and I'm sure you have at some, le at some level, but how have you ever felt strongly limited as a developer, not so much as a live streamer or devrel or whatever you want to call it, but as someone who writes code by the mm -hmm. fact that your options to technology are, are limited to a degree of, in my experience, having worked extensively and at scale with both Azure and AWS, for example, mm -hmm. uh, not so much with GPC because nobody uses that, um, but uh, with Azure and AWS, they very much are similar services having similar, uh, sorry, similar providers having similar services, but in, in some cases, one counterpart has one of the features I really wish the other one had, and eventually it might get it. Uh, it's not uncommon. Have you ever felt that you wanted to look at some piece of technology to integrate to ClipTalk and you just couldn't because of the position you were? And how do you deal with that? So, to be clear, I'm not limited in the technologies that I try and interact with. I'm limited in the technologies that I interact with in public. So yes, there are competitors that I can't, I, I, I am required to not feature on live streams, blogs, these types of things. That's, that's just the nature of the beast. You work for this company. We really don't want you promoting and talking about competitor X and I, I'm, I'm very forward in saying it doesn't matter to me if you use 
one of Microsoft's competitors' products. Um, I'd really like you to try ours and and let us know what you think, why you don't like ours. And, and that's a perfectly valid discussion to have. But I try out and I, I will step into some of those other products now and again, try different programming languages, different services, different tools. I just don't share that as publicly on, on a live stream. Some of my colleagues have done that. They also have a little bit more gravitas in, in the space and they can, they, they can handle some of the, the pressure that comes from marketing folks. That is hard um, to believe, to be honest. That that last bit because yeah maybe you're playing too safe I don't know um, no there, uh, some of my colleagues have written blog posts and things about some of the competitors' products they have and they received they, they they had a talking to I look I there was a a conversation that came down from from the folks at Xbox about using Mixer and I. I had to, I had to write and and state a little bit about here's what I like about Mixer, here's what I don't like about Mixer. Interesting. At the time when I parted using Mixer, so I I feel comfortable talking about Mixer since that's been offline now for two years. It's a little bit further behind us, but when you when you do talk about larger companies that have a very large product portfolio, it's it. It helps everybody if you use and provide feedback about our own products, particularly in public. It's also good to know about the competitors' products as well, so that you can provide that feedback of, hey, I was able to do this on AWS, and it was real easy for me to use, and I couldn't do that on Azure. Maybe this is something we want to look at, and to have that insight is valuable. When I worked at Telerik, I regularly downloaded and tried other folks' component libraries, open source component libraries. Hey, we we built feature XYZ. What does what do they have? What do these folks over there have? Is there something that we can make better? What's our competitive advantage? How do we do more with that? That's part of being a product manager and being able to give that insight in in what's valuable and what isn't. So can I, do I use those things? Absolutely. I, I check into them. I don't want to say regularly, but occasionally it, but I, I'm not going to be out publicly saying, Hey, look at what's so great about Lambda. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I can't do that. Yeah. What I will do is I will say, you know what? Azure functions are really great for these reasons. And I'll focus on those reasons that I know Azure functions does better than Lambda. I'm, I'm not somebody who's going to be negative publicly towards another product. I'm going to be positive and, and promote those things that our tools, technologies, and services do great. So it is not uncommon watching you, however, um, and that's maybe not so common now, uh, but probably one year ago, uh, it was a, a pretty common thing where you try to integrate with some Azure service. And either documentation on the SDK would be lacking, or we're doing something mm -hmm. else. Um, the SDK would just be plainly bad. There would be like two SDKs and which one should I use? Yep. And it was very hard for you, at least that's the way I perceived it, to contain yourself because you, yeah. you, you come across as someone who's very passionate about technology being done right. 
and it's very hard to just openly criticize that. So how 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 do you deal with that being live? Obviously, you're gonna go ahead and open an issue, or the, the common thing was I'm gonna have a chat with the SDK team or whatever. I I, I think it was along those lines. Um, and yep. that's, you know, one of the great things about doing it on the wild, obviously, but I don't necessarily believe it has to come to a program manager coding live for those things to get better. There's two problems exactly. here. The first one is customers are not vocal enough. Yes. P people should be like, that should be the mentality that people have. If something is bad, yes. raise it. Everything is in the open. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then consistency in documentation which now it's way better than it was yes but it's still not great and that's not unique to microsoft by the way uh that's on everyone but with so, so many versions so many dotnet so many you know sdks yeah yeah um so at the time right a year or two ago i i literally went to went to somebody in leadership on Azure and said, I cannot use your product on live streams and in live demos because it is X, Y, Z. And um, message was heard loud and clear. And those folks got their stuff in line. Um, I, friends of mine that work on the SDK, friends that work on various tools and features around Azure, I had long conversations with them about this doesn't work in the simple scenarios. How are you expecting this to be a thing? And going through and having that conversation at the point where the community facing program managers are having to deal with customer questions and problems is frustrating. Why, why don't you have these types of interactions before we get out? And forcing that discussion has dramatically improved their interactions, has dramatically improved the folks who are writing the documentation as well and encouraging and pushing that. Um, getting the feedback buttons inside of Visual Studio and the Azure portal are huge because folks on the program manager team, and I was one of the folks on that team, you have to respond to that within 48 hours. You have to triage it, you have to look at it, you have to do something with it within 48 business hours. So that gets that those concerns in front of these folks' eyes very, very quickly and directly. So now they're able to address it and go through and say, okay, we've got to, we've got to take care of these things. We've got a big problem or right. Whatever it is that they need to address. Coming back to, I mean, I hinted at yesterday, yesterday I had a stream. I was going through and doing things with Azure functions. And it was, it, it was hard to use. There was so much that just didn't feel right for me as a .NET developer. And I had an hour long conversation with the folks on the Azure function team. I'm privileged that I get to do that. I get it, but it, it shouldn't have gotten to me. I, I raised to them, customers have been talking about this. Here's places where you can see customers talking about this. We need to do a better job partnering with that feedback and improving the product. And that was something that those program managers learned that that team now is acknowledged and said, you're right. We didn't do a good job with this. We're going to make it better. Here's what we're going to do over the next two, three months to get there. 
that's the type of thing that working with clip talk something at scale that's that's a public facing product that i let those folks have access to the source code let, go ahead take a look you can tinker around in, in there i trust them and they we can talk about these because it's not the typical oh here's a hello world service out there or something that connects up to a service bus and does something very very simple no these are these are longer scope functions that do very interesting complex business logic working with videos and audio files and all kinds of things so it's more of a real test that they can interact with now because because I approached it as let's partner with this and do more with this. I don't get to the point of being frustrated on stream because they're hearing from me and they're engaging sooner on these types of things, which in turn makes the product better for all the customers out there. I think the main problem with this is that you have a sort of hard dependency on someone who you shouldn't have to for quality control. Totally agreed. Totally because agree. it's not your job to be the voice of the customer. Is it? I don't think it is. That's what I'm saying. So this is this is the interesting bit of developer relations. Folks look at developer relations as, oh, I write blog posts, I generate videos, I go speak at conferences. That's talking to the talking at the customer. Got to make sure I put this right. That's talking at customers, and that's not what, in my experience now doing developer relations of one sort or another for more than 10 years. That's not what developer relations is. It's a discussion. It's a two-way discussion. You are the, the, <clears throat> the middle between marketing and product. You are customer relations. Your job is not just to teach and educate about, hey, here's new feature XYZ. I wrote a tutorial on this. I have a, a presentation to get you involved. I have a video that's going to show you in five minutes the, the real quick uh, get started scenario. But it's also listening to that feedback, prioritizing it, talking to the customers and going in, in some cases, speaking to customers and government organizations that are, want to use the product getting their feedback and helping to make it clear for the program manager that's responsible for the product, who's also talking to customers, but you're helping to deliver that funnel of feedback so that they can make educated decisions about how to prioritize product direction, development, um, and new features they want to add. So it's, it's really important to have that, that two-way discussion and to facilitate it for the folks who are making product decisions, whether it's the program manager in charge of the product, it's their manager that's in charge of a suite of products, or the vice president above them who has the vision for the product for the next five years. I'm in line with that. I totally align, align with you saying. My, my main point is you're live streaming this and you're using it. Mm -hmm. after it's been out yep which sort of feels like old microsoft microsoft old microsoft anyway would make a c-sharp version without too much feedback from the community so you hey, five is out so four is out you know dynamic is now a mm -hmm. keyword but here you go and mm -hmm. then the feedback would come in mm -hmm. from users um while now with everything being in the open i see this discussion 
on .NET and C Sharp, I don't really see it so much on on Azure. Maybe that's that's me. Um, admittedly, I'm using Azure less than I used. I still use Azure in some of my personal projects, um, but I think this discussion is way more active on .NET and C Sharp than it is mm-hmm. on Azure, and that's the the main. I don't want to say issue I have because I don't really have an issue with it, but that's what I observe. So what you're seeing is is the seams between divisions in Microsoft. Right. The developer tools division that manages Visual Studio, uh, .NET SDKs, Python SDKs and tooling, Visual Studio Code, JavaScript and TypeScript tooling, the TypeScript language, Q Sharp, all it and. Uh, uh, Azure DevOps is part of our charter as well. Those tools, those technologies, we have a very clear way that we want to engage with our customers, with our community. Making all of Visual Studio Code and all of .NET open source, publishing and making the, the Python tools and TypeScript and TypeScript tools open source, huge steps to encouraging and engaging in those conversations. You're absolutely right. Azure products, mostly closed source. Some of the techniques, some of the things, they do open source. They release a Linux distribution that helps drive some of Azure. They release some of the the underlying technologies that help Azure run, run well. Um, and we publish benchmarks and things from DevDiv about how ASP.NET helps make Bing run well, showing how that works. But very much those services on Azure they're closed source under the covers. Once you get past they're closed source, we're not really talking to folks about, you know, how can we make these things technically better? We're talking to customers about features that we want to improve. And even then the level of the customer that they're talking to is not the startup is not the small organization that they're talking to regularly. They hear, and the folks that make a louder, a louder noise in the room are going to be those larger customers that that want to do more with more Azure. So those are the folks that are having those discussions. You're not going to see the community level discussions about, hey, uh, how can we make app service faster by uh, engaging and in, in tweaking the way that the operating system works. You're not. It, it, that's just not it. There's a competitive advantage that's that's inherent in Azure when we talk about AWS and GCP being used in the same space. And quite frankly, those folks want to get an advantage because right now it, everybody's building the same things in, in the cloud services. AWS has a lead because they're doing feature X and six months later, Azure has feature X and two, three months after that, GCP has it. GCP adds Kubernetes and all of a sudden within a year, Azure and AWS have, have really great Kubernetes hosting. It's, it, it's very much, we, we're going to get three to six months lead time on the other two cloud services. We need to be quiet, focused, deliver, take advantage of that. And then we can see, uh, do more with it at that point. That's just typical business things that are going on. And yeah, it is old school Microsoft, the way those things are working, but you, you also don't see those same discussions from, from the other cloud vendors. You don't see, AWS and GCP out there asking, hey, what would you like us to do with our website hosting? 
you don't see that technical discussion. You'll see customer-oriented discussions around, hey, wouldn't it be great to add feature X? Interestingly enough, I think AWS recently published a GitHub issue where they want to basically standardize the way messages on their messaging services are consumed. So standardize the API and then allow everything to be sort of plug and play. Things that mass transit or end service bus has been doing for a long time. Um, and, and they very much are open to feedback, but um, this is not a, an AWS versus Azure, and I don't want to be um, sure. one anyway. Um, I, I want to take a step back and go back to the streaming, and I want to ask you, obviously now you're the executive producer of .NET Conf, and mm -hmm. again, congratulations on the release and how that, that was run. It was, it was pretty smooth. Um, I was actually watching it live while it was playing. I wasn't... Uh, um, speaking at it and um i had quite a few viewers actually and it was a very nice discussion in chat as things were were going on screen and we're talking about it and uh, maybe in the future we can have a partnership where um i can actually stream it because i didn't have permission i didn't want to do that um as a viewer but i know some other channels did i'm not sure they had permissions permission to do that but anyway Nobody has permission, yeah no. yeah i didn't want to risk it so i didn't stream it i was just said if you want, open it in another screen and we can have a discussion. Um, mm -hmm. And it was pretty weird for Chad and me to see in the first hour, I want to say, or two hours, a lot of no code or low code solutions mm -hmm. and then heavy Azure usage mm -hmm. on an event called .NET Conf. And somehow, obviously, you have to pay the bill because .NET in itself doesn't really from what I understand, make money. Things around it do. Um, but there was quite a bit of negativity coming out of that, and I want to make it uh, very visible to you, because it just felt like it was an event for people who are passionate about .NET, but it focused on things that are not directly .NET in, on the first two hours. An, the, the sentiment wasn't, you should not talk about those things at all. It's, let's start with the highlights and then push it back. So what do you so, think about that? I think um, I think folks don't really, I, I think there's a, a dramatic negative tone from the .NET community towards the ideas of minimal API and the low code approach to building and starting websites. Looking at the agenda for .NET Conf, the first two hours were all about the web. They were all about building with Blazor, building with, with minimal APIs, building high-performance services, and, and then that run in the cloud, and then handing off to cloud topics and showing, well, if you're using .NET, and one of the big themes for .NET 7 is high-performance, being able to do more with less code, marrying that and bringing that into and doing a cloud discussion after talking about minimal APIs, new Blazor features, was a, a natural transition. Going from web content to then talking about desktop apps or MAUI apps, when we had just done a full of eight-hour event about .NET MAUI, not three months prior, was giving too much visibility to MAUI in day one when it already had a full day. And there, the change between the MAUI release in August and November wasn't as significant as some of these other features and capabilities that we did want to highlight.
we definitely got into Maui and got into um, building other uh, native apps later in the day. Um, I, I look at this in in the mindset of nobody's ever going to be 100% happy with the content that we present and dig into. Presenting and delivering content on day one, we want to make sure that we grab and make sure and get the folks who are new to .NET, who are trying this out and want to get involved. I want to get some of those folks involved, interested in trying some of the things that are that are interesting, that are valuable to them and similar to what they're already using. Get them involved sooner than later. Get them interested. The folks that, that want to learn about building mobile apps, native apps, that want to get into some of the other stories, we got to that later in the day. We got to um, showing and interacting with other products and deep into the language in day two by, by setting up and structuring these blocks of content where, you know what, we put two hours together right up front about web because we know most of the folks that want to use .NET that are tuned into .NET Conf want to learn about web technologies. Here it is. The partner technology to go with that, cloud. And we, we can't talk about .NET and all the places you can use .NET without talking about cloud services, without talking about Visual Studio, talking about power apps at some level and different ways to integrate. Yeah, there's folks that would rather us start off and jump right into .NET Maui. There are. We did a full day of that three, three months prior. So folks that are upset that we didn't dive back in and talk about Windows native apps, we got to it. It wasn't, it wasn't something that was a big bang topic. It wasn't the, one of the pillars of the release that was coming out. So it wasn't the focus that we wanted to land on. And I, I'm okay with pushing that later in the event. But if folk, the folks that don't like minimal APIs and the smaller approach, the low code approach to writing very productive .NET content, they're not the folks that I'm trying to attract and start using .NET. You can, can, you can continue writing code the exact same way that you have been. No change to that whatsoever. But folks that are looking at Node and Python and want to consider working with .NET, I'm going to put content in front of them that is attractive to them, that's similar to the way that they program, so that maybe they get interested and stick around a little bit. So, at least in my chat, and that's probably because I've been a very vocal advocate of that low, uh, not local, but minimal API approach. Uh, everyone was absolutely happy for, with not saying Maui, I don't talk about it, and basically they, they just switched it off when Maui came about. Everyone was very happy with the web. Uh, the biggest issue and the, the negativity peaked at power apps by far because the sentiment was who cares who cares as a dotnet developer even if you're doing python or or node who wants to mm -hmm. jump to power apps because you're doing um javascript or python it's it's not really you know who are you trying to win here that that was the sentiment um Minimal APIs, you know, maybe I've been very blessed with being on board from the very beginning and, and have cultivated that um, idea. But if you want to get new developers, and if this event is really for new developers and not existing ones primarily, mm -hmm. then is that what you want to make them think .NET is? And low-code, no-code, power-ups, Azure-only service? 
that's what doesn't hit with me. So we didn't get to, to power apps till middle of day two. Um, and the idea there is there is when, when we want to promote and talk about power apps is that there is a very significant, um, power apps community out there. It, it is, it, it is significant in enterprises and in organizations where people want to enable that citizen developer, that person who isn't writing as much code. So how do we bring those folks into the discussion so that they appreciate ways that they can interact with .NET services, building and running and, and using .NET capabilities with their power apps that they haven't seen yet? So there's a huge volume of content across many, many different tech, Microsoft technologies and external to Microsoft technologies that we want to be able to tell the whole story about. So yeah, there's going to be folks that they don't want to hear about power apps. They think it's not worth it to hear about that during a .NET event. I appreciate that. I understand that. But there's also folks that do want to build apps with teams and use .NET to do that. How do we do that? How do we get started? So I, I want to include that in the story that we're trying to tell about the whole collection of things that .NET does. You, if, if folks want to come back and say, well, you didn't cover enough IoT on this. Okay, that's a valid criticism. But saying that um, your folks are not interested in this part and it shouldn't be part of an event because they're not interested in it is being blind to the entire .NET community. And we need to appreciate that the .NET community builds things from 64 kilobytes to 64 terabytes and everything in between. And to that end, everybody has a piece of the pie that we want to make sure that they can, that they can try out. Okay. That, that, that does make sense. I just wanted to make sure I, I got my facts right. So I just quickly opened the .NET conf first and my second screen. Um, and yeah, uh, power apps were actually shown for the better part of five to, I don't want to go all the way to the end, but I think five to 10 minutes, um, in the first hour of the event. Sure. They were in the keynote. Yeah, yep. they were in the keynote. So just wanted to make sure I, I, I didn't mix up the dates. Um, and that cool. was where that was the, the whole discussion and, started. And, and what's interesting about building keynotes for large events, and, and I'm not talking about just .NET Conf, but when you think about build, you think about, yeah, gosh, think about Apple's keynote events, right? Most, the large majority of viewers including the press are watching the keynote and the keynote only, and that's it. So it's important to cover things in that keynote that the casual viewer is going to appreciate. So you need to hit the widest audience possible. And there's things that aren't going to be deep topics that we're going to get into during the event, or we've got pre-recorded content to support, or even just written content to support because it's not a key thing that we want to deliver during the event, but the press needs to hear it. I hate saying that, but the press needs to hear it. There is a, there, the marketing value of a keynote is huge. And when we plan keynotes, we need to make sure, yeah, we, we land that content properly so that everybody gets their piece of the pie because 
well, uh, let's be frank. It's marketing folks and marketing organizations that pay for events. It's not product organizations. So we need to make sure that we convey that message to all the products that need to be supported. Folks not appreciating and saying, oh, this is stupid. I don't want to hear about this in the keynote. Yeah, message hurt. I get it. I totally get it. But I also understand that while one group of folks is saying, I don't want to hear about power apps in the keynote. There's another group of folks that are saying, I don't want to hear about web apps during the keynote as well. So yeah, it's, it, it's not a winning scenario. So you're always going to have some folks that are saying, oh, I didn't really want to see this. Okay. Yep. Totally understandable. I missed a question. Oh, here we go. So Layla uh, from the Layla code, code, code it. Channel, Layla Never Potter. heard of her. Who? Yeah, Ooh. there's no way you've ever heard of her, and she will be a guest <laughs> on the podcast some some point. Uh, but um, she asked, "What ideas does Jeff have for bringing new devs to the community?" He's mentioned talking about talk, talking about it all, but how would you make sure that people hear the million dollar question? How do we get so, people in? How do we get people in? It's my belief we've got to start earlier. It's my belief that, um, and I'm, I, I'm not divulging any secrets here. It's my belief that since 2002, when Microsoft.net was initially released, that the .NET technologies were hidden behind a giant paywall, a box called Visual Studio.net. And the only way to get it was to shell out 500, a thousand, $1,500 to get access to that. And quite frankly, colleges, universities, high schools, educational organizations, they weren't going to ask students to go out and spend that kind of money to get .NET. So there's a generation that just didn't have access to this because quite frankly, there was a, there, there was a large gate pre preventing them from entering. Moving .NET to the open source model, it was moved and well, it was moved initially as as part of the, um, the the concessions with the SEC that Microsoft had back in 2002, 2003 was open source. You could get the source code, but you weren't allowed to touch it. You weren't allowed to recompile it and do anything with it. But again, in 2008, 2012, and especially in 2014, 2015 with .NET Core being released, the move to very open source, very accessible, free for anybody to build and work with was a gigantic step in that direction to make it more accessible for everybody to use. But how do we make that more accessible for everybody, including training materials, including opportunities to learn and build all the cool things that we can do with C sharp, with VB, with F sharp. It's my belief that we need to make more educational material for folks that are in um, in educational organizations. How do we do that? How do we make this accessible to those folks when you can sit down and use VS Code or Notepad or Vim to build and, and deliver content? Um, I, I look at, <laughs> I'm going to pause for a second there. Um, there are schools out there that don't want kids using VS Code. They don't want them using it because there you go what? nick that's exactly my reaction i've never heard of story. this chat room gather round where do you hear this my daughters for for a while 2017 2018 2019 
were going to a, a cyber school. They were just like dad. They were taking school at home, communicating over webcam with their teachers. It was a great experience. Really set them up well for when quarantine hit and uh, everybody's got to be at home and learning. They were already set up. They already knew how to do that. But as part of that, um, my older daughter had a class on on computer. They, they, hey, we're going to have a computer programming class. That's great. Here's a sixth grade class that's going to learn um, all about computer programming. And they were using, uh, they, they were building little HTML pages and delivering and, and writing simple web pages. Fantastic. I love hearing that. Kids building web pages and putting, they, they take a picture of, of your pet dog or cat and put their name on the page. Simple things to do, right? Those first steps. And my daughter's writing this code using, she's on her Mac and she, yes, my daughter has a Mac. Um, and she's typing it in, in the text editor there. And you know what? She says, dad, this is, this is a pain in the neck. I don't, I don't enjoy doing this. Is, is there a better way to write this? I'm really not enjoying writing web code. And I said, wait, do you see what dad's team works on? We build a thing called visual studio code. Oh, let me take a look at that. So we install Visual Studio Code and all the things that we as developers love and enjoy about our tools, right? Tag matching, autocomplete of tags, formatting things nicely. She wrote with Visual Studio Code and delivered a web page that looked, for, for a sixth grader, first time writing a web page, looked fine. And the teacher was so mad. You're cheating. What? because she was getting autocomplete. She was getting oh IntelliSense help because when you type an attribute that doesn't belong on, on a table tag or on a bold tag, it would give you the red underline. Ah, that doesn't work here. Or it would give you a hint to help with colors. Ah, that, that's not how you spell papaya whip. That's, that's cheating. It's my belief students should have access to these things. It's my belief that we can do more with that. It's my belief that there's a magic to writing software that we can all share and experience and do more with and, and, and live streaming, producing code and, and, and content and, and making other folks more productive. It, it, it gives me my gosh, it gives me spoons. It makes me feel so good. How can we do that for kids? So Nick, I, I, I want to share with you. I've been doing a lot of work with the Raspberry Pi Foundation for years and years now, donating money to them and, and helping them with their Coder Dojo platform and building projects and tools to help kids learn more about, about technology. How can we get .NET into their hands? I want to get .NET easy to run on a Raspberry Pi with VS Code and, and little um, training materials that can go out there that are easy for folks to learn about that. I wrote a tutorial, some folks may have seen this, that shows folks here's how to build a Connect 4 game using Blazor in your browser. Simple, cool, that's, that's something fun to do. We can put that in the hands of kids and, and other similar things so that they can have fun and learn and do more with that. I want to raise more money for folks like the Raspberry Pi Foundation and, and help with Microsoft deliver content that folks like Raspberry Pi Foundation or schools 
or educational groups can do more with to help out and, and grow that next generation of developers because the gates are open. And I use that term liberally, the gates are open that were closed for the initial 10 years of .NET. Let's get more folks in. Let's make it easy for folks to do this by enabling folks who are doing things like Power Apps and Teams integrations to use a little bit of .NET. Now we've got folks learning and building for the next, the next generation of technology. The problem with that, even though that's a that's one of the things that I think each language should do or should be doing, that is a long-term investment. And that can take five to 10 years to manifest to something that can actually return. In yes. that meantime, languages suffer from this interesting catch-22, which is the less people using a language, the less people are likely to use a language. And the more people are using a language, the more people will use a language mm. because people want to feel like they belong. So, yep. Obviously, features like minimal APIs, for example, are a great approach to getting um, those Python or JavaScript developers to using the language, sure. and, that, and that, that's great. Uh, but you sort of have to want to transfer over, and it's not something you can force on anyone. No. So what people... The way I think about this, especially as a content creator speaking with thousands of people, is the only real entry point realistically that dot, that C Sharp actually has as a language, and by entry point, I mean sort of a, a funnel for developers, is not something that Microsoft owns. It is Unity. It's not minimal APIs, it's not HTML core, it, it, it probably going to be a long time before it is any of those things. So what happens when Unity says, you know what, we're going to go with Rust, or we're going to go with Go for the next version, which is very unlikely. But at that point, I'd be very scared about C Sharp. Because the, the approach now is someone makes a game because it's very easy to make a game with C Sharp. You, you search how to do this with C Sharp. Now, Unity code mm -hmm. is horrible. And it, it I've tried to code something <laughs> in Unity and it brought the worst Nick developer out of me uh, from all those years back. But at least it can get people interested. And when they say, oh, I now need a real-time connection to my game or I need an API for my game, then they can make the jump mm -hmm. because they can leverage what they have. But if that goes away and with uh, XNA now being dead as well, how are we guaranteeing that this avenue just won't close? Is that then Microsoft, Microsoft's responsibility to step in and buy Unity just to keep the language there? What, what are your thoughts on this? So there, I, I can't speak directly towards it. I don't know the details, but there was, um, th th there have been collaborations. There have been business dealings with the Unity organization that Microsoft has has closed. And folks can look up the the press releases about that. I, I don't know the specific details about that, but there is a strong collaboration with the Unity organization. And there are folks on the .NET team that work with them to help ensure that Unity benefits from the investments in the C-sharp programming language, like you're saying, and, and .NET Core, .NET 6, .NET 7. And they end up with games that run faster in the Unity game engine. You're right. It's a fantastic avenue for folks to get involved and try out .NET and, and build things. And it, even throwing back to my topic about Raspberry Pi, folks in the Raspberry Pi organization have Unity running on Raspberry Pi devices. So there's... You're right, a great avenue for folks to come in and try that out. I also look at 
how ASP.NET Core is among the fastest frameworks for building server-side web content. The web's not going away. It's been around 25 plus years, 30 years. Um, that's not going away. That's very much someplace where we're going to be able to hang our hat that folks are building and delivering content with that for a very long time. A lot of the optimizations that have gone into ASP.NET Core have come from Microsoft's own first-party websites. I mentioned Bing earlier. A lot of features go into Bing because go into ASP.NET Core because it supports Bing. And then you can take advantage of using that with building your own websites. So at the very least, there is a very strong first-party ecosystem of Microsoft tools, products, um, applications that run in Windows, run on Mac, run on, run on Linux that are built with .NET. So if the entire .NET ecosystem were to say, you know what, we're going to go in a different direction. We're going to go and jump on Rust or Go. Um, okay. Those languages have their advantages. They also have their disadvantages. And I've, I've heard within the last few days from organizations that said, you know what, I don't, it, .NET isn't appealing to me anymore. I want to go to something that all the developers are talking about. Let's, let's rewrite and move the organization to Go. And they went over to Go. And it was really hard to build apps the same way that they were building with .NET. They weren't as productive. And bringing in folks who were productive and at that high level that they needed with Go, they just weren't out there. The, the ecosystem isn't as rich for those technologies. And that's, that's kind of a keeping up with the Joneses problem where they're not there. Not, .NET's been around for 20 years, coming up on 25 years. And I can't believe I just said that. Um, and, and there's a massive install base of this that just like Java, just like C++, it's not going to go away. COBOL went away. Fortran went away. It's out there. People aren't really building new things with those, but there, there are regular investments into .NET to continue making it faster better, more capabilities for building apps. My gosh, I'm building my first mobile app with .NET MAUI. And it's, it's been something that I would have never considered if I had to write it with Java or, or with Swift or Objective-C. But because it's in a technology that I'm really good at, having that portability of my skills is something that a lot of these other technologies don't have, at least at the productive level that we do with .NET. That's something that that organizations, customers of Microsoft that do use .NET realize and appreciate that they do have that portability. Absolutely, there are amazing things you can build with Go and Rust. Not knocking them at all. They, they've built some really cool things. System level capabilities and technologies. Docker and various database technologies. Really cool stuff. Never gonna knock that stuff. Congratulations. They, that's really cool stuff that the web is built on, that the internet is built on. But you know what? When I'm building a website, I don't want to use Go and have to pass around pointers to objects and things. Those are things I don't want to have to think about. Using a higher level language like C Sharp, Java, JavaScript makes me more productive at the end of the day. So there's a tool for everything and not every tool is right for all the things. 
So if I can show kids that they can build websites, that they can they can build games with Unity, that they can do cool things to interact with with their YouTube channels, with their Twitch channels, fantastic. I'm going to encourage that and and hopefully light up that magic in in their in their head behind their eyes so they get excited about things. So I think there's big opportunities there, and like you said, it is a long-term investment. It's a it, it's a investment that Apple's been very good at for dozens and dozens of years, helping and fostering schools and and educational institutions, making it easy to get Apple devices. But on the other hand, we need to get back in that game too. Yep. Well, is there a question in chat that you saw that you want to address and? I'm also conscious we're reaching the two-hour mark, so I'm I'm good for a little bit here. Perfect. If anybody, if if you want to keep going for a little no, bit, no, of course, of course. Um, somebody was asking what my first programming language was. Uh, just like Plagueheart, my first programming language was Commodore 64 Basic. I I have a blog post on my blog about how um, I sat around the dining room table with with my father who was a, a Unix administrator, IBM AIX at the time. And and he knew basic from programming in, in college. And he was teaching, here, I'm his four-year-old son, and he's teaching me how to write Hello World with Commodore 64 basic using the family Commodore 64 on the dining room table. And it was such a rush that 40 years later, I got to write the blog post announcing that Visual Basic was going basic, Visual Basic, the language that 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 Gates brought forth, that I that, that was being brought to and would work on AIX. To bring that full circle from my dad taught me this back then and get to call my dad, hey dad, we just made Visual Basic work on on Unix machines now with .NET. That was something that that was huge for me. And um, I, I will, I will never forget. And being able to to point back at basic as kind of where I started from, um, yeah, it, it's something that I very much appreciate. And and I I want my kids to have that that feeling of excitement with whatever their career might be, that they get to do something that evolves over time, that they can call back to mom and dad and brag about. So. Yeah, I, I'm a bit on the fence of the kids thing, but but if I do have them, the moment they can talk, let's let's talk about pointers. <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> it's kids get interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, decision making changes dramatically once kids enter the picture. Yeah. Yeah, I really want to see how my schedule will be affected as well. It's it's an interesting dynamic. Where we might have been staying up and working on, on a cool passion project, hobby project till 2, 3 in the morning. You're not doing that because at 2, 3 in the morning, somebody needs to be fed. <laughs> Once a week streams, well, there's ways to work around that. There's ways to make that work. Yeah. So. Well, I I missed it. I should have I should have pinned it. There was a, there was a question I wanted to. What what is the next theme now for uh, February? Obviously, new month. 
Um, you know what? Stream? I haven't been. I, oh, for my stream, I don't. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. I thought you were something else. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm going through and finishing a bit of uh, SQL Server migration. I'm migrating from RavenDB back to SQL Server running on Azure. Um, and quite frankly, the folks from the SQL Server team reached out to me because they had seen me working on, on ClipTalk. And I had talked to some folks at a conference that I spoke at in December. And they said, you got to check out what we're doing over here. There's some things that we think you're going to find really interesting. And and I I, I took the Pepsi challenge. I, I spent a day or two and migrated some code and looked at how it ran and and went through and gave them some feedback on some things that turned me off when I evaluated SQL Server in the past. And I learned some things that really changed my mind about how I could work with SQL Server. And spending a year and a half working in a NoSQL database really changed my approach to working with relational data. I'm not, I'm not ingrained in the third normal form approach to writing and reading data from a database. Let's, let's denormalize a little bit more. And there's some interesting things, performance improvements that we see because of that. So I'm going to be finishing that migration um, at the beginning of February. I have other features that I want to add around artificial intelligence. Good example. Um, folks on YouTube and Twitch post things that like to skirt the lines, that like to go right up to that borderline of here's here's something that is that that is appropriate for families to be able to see, safe for work, right? You know where I'm saying this. I think Twitch is <laughs> way more of a of a violator of that, especially with some categories. Totally agreed. But totally okay. agreed. And Twitch has some has some rules around those categories. Yeah. And I wanted to make sure that ClipTalk didn't have that type of um, it, first experience for folks. You tune in and all of a sudden, oh my gosh, I don't want to be seeing that. And building a website that, that is going to serve folks, exactly, folks that are all over the world need to be able to control that a little bit for folks that don't want to see that. So I... I wrote some functionality last month that would bounce some of those images, those thumbnail images, off of an Azure service that would identify um, racy, adult, or gory content. Okay, so I, I drew a line. If something is more than 90% confident that it's racy, adult, or gory, we're going to blur that by default. And adding in just that little bit of artificial intelligence helps to curb and, and make the content a little bit more acceptable to folks around the world. I want to continue to drive that feature so that folks can tune up and down. You know what? I'm okay seeing a little bit of that, but you know what? Let's, let's not, um, let's not let everything through. There's a level where I don't want to see that, but stuff that you have lower confidence of, that's okay. I don't mind seeing some of that come through that type of control and interaction. That's types of things that I want to build. I, I feel that bringing more artificial intelligence into our applications, you mentioned chat GPT earlier, the cool things that we can do with that. How, how does that affect and help our other applications? There's applications of that that could be very interesting in the scope of, of my application of ClipTalk. So let's explore that. Let's take a look at what we can do with that. Figure out what other 
insights we can generate using AI technologies by analyzing clips that are created, how folks interact with those clips. And let's make those available, maybe even monetize, so that folks can learn more about how to be a better streamer, how to generate content that folks are interested in from, from their videos. So that's what I'm looking at over the next month or two. How come you're migrating from uh, RavenDB? Because I've been approached by, I think it's CTO, but also CEO, I can't remember his mm -hmm. name, um, mm -hmm. to use it. And it's something mm -hmm. I've actually used and evaluated in the past, and it was just not cutting it for what I needed. And services like Cosmos and Dynamo were fine, or even Couchbase at the time. Mm -hmm. um, what, what can... SQL Server now do that you didn't have before, and now you're migrating away from RavenDB. So Raven has a really great capability to build and manage its own indexes for you. As you start to work with the data in, in a NoSQL structure, it'll identify, here's, here's indexes that you're looking for, and it'll build those on the fly for you. When you're building an application that folks are interacting with and stepping away from and the, the data is at rest for a long period of time with, with a lot of reads and not as many writes. Raven is amazing because every time you write, it has to recalculate those indexes, lay them out appropriately on disk and be able to interact with them. And for those types of applications, it's fantastic. What I'm running into with ClipTalk is I'm writing data about clips that are being created. We created more than 2 million clips in the month of January in the RavenDB database. Every time a clip is created, it's writing that data to disk. Not only does it write that data to disk, but 40 other indexes wake up, recalculate, and write that data to disk. Those disks end up spinning fast and hot. And quite frankly, I'm blowing right through my I.O. allocation. There's times where ClipTalk doesn't respond because the disk isn't allowed to spin anymore. That's a problem. So I introduce caching algorithms and mechanisms, places to put data so that it isn't hitting that disk when you first visit. Okay. But I'm also finding that the pre-calculations and ways that I was laying out data so that it was denormalized and ready for me to interact with that works fantastic in a NoSQL environment is now available over in SQL Server. Things like JSON columns, being able to interact with, query that data, flatten that data so that I have an, a user-defined function that will query data, flatten out a JSON column and allow me to interact with that in a relational way to output reports or bring it back with Entity Framework and paint it on screen. Runs very, very fast. Runs with without those limitations of I.O. And even when I do bounce up against my, my I.O. thresholds, the, the service gives me a little bit more capability there before it completely shuts me yeah. off and, and doesn't respond at all. Is that not a thing on Raven, to be? So That buffer? That there... Mm, mm, because of how it, the, the ClipTalk app writes to disk every minute with hundreds of new clips, it allows those writes to happen. But because the indexes rebuild, it, it effectively blocks requests because right. the, the index is still rebuilding. If I wasn't writing that volume of data, and I, I'm talking about writing two gigs of data, two gigs of clip data each month 
Um, that's a lot of data that it's writing. And the indexes rebuilding and growing are another gig or two each month. That's a lot that's being rebuilt and running. And Raven is handling it. And I can absolutely pay for it and grow and take more service to build more, buy more cloud service to be able to do that. Financially, I can't. Yeah. I just can't. I, there's a budget that Fritz can pay for his database. I've hit that budget. Yeah. So it, it, this is something that I think the cloud vendors, and I'm, I'm not going to touch Raven or AWS or Azure. I think all the cloud vendors do a poor job of in explaining what the grow up story is. I'm starting on service X and I need to do more. I need to grow up. I've got more traffic. Well, you can buy more X, but maybe you want to migrate to Y and start using an alternate architecture to do more of those things. I'm on queues in Azure, Azure storage queues. Maybe you want to grow up and use service bus now or event grid. And here's, here's what can help you make those decisions to do that grow up story to these other architectures. That's valuable for me as somebody who's building an application to have that insight that's being shown to me, not just by a little bit of documentation, but by an existing application that's growing and going through that process and sharing that experience with how Cliptalk is growing, it's been terrific. Yeah, having a real project for those things can really show you how these services scale. I've been, I've been lucky to have worked with both Cosmos DB and again, DynamoDB uh, later, go. writing gigabytes of data a day, not even a month. Uh, probably the, the, the biggest DynamoDB, which is the, the counterpart of Cosmos DB in AWS, mm -hmm. that I've managed was like 1.7 terabytes. It was a lot. It was thousands of requests per second. Oh, yeah. And um, thankfully, you have features to deal with that sort of scale. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure actually Raven has this feature as well, where as things happen, you can listen to those as a queue and then act on it. I don't know if it is a feature. Maybe I'm thinking a different database. Um, but on Dynamo and Cosmos as well. In Cosmos, it's called the change feed. You can have a Lambda listening for changes in Cosmos DB. Um, I say Lambda, Azure function listening mm -hmm. for change Cosmos DB and then process that as sort of a, an eventing mechanism and then put it into a database, optimize it into a Redis cache or rehydrate a cache and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, it sort of works like Kafka to a degree, a log structure. Sure. Um, and you can, you can eliminate all of the services around it. So you can optimize for search if someone wants mm -hmm. to be very flexible with text, which is one of the biggest pain points, especially with the oh, um, yeah. clip. Uh, is it called transcribing where you you listen to the text and you save the text so you can search for it. Yep, yep I uh, transcribe yeah. not all of them, but uh, the a good number top, of clips. Yeah. Um, th those types of things, you know, you would probably optimize to Azure search or uh, Elasticsearch, whatever you, whatever mm -hmm. you choose Absolutely. Search on, when you're searching millions of documents on Azure Cognitive Search or Elasticsearch, that starts to get expensive. But full text search in SQL Server is good enough. So let's use that. Full text search in RavenDB is great. Let's use that. And so. one of the things that I don't know if the viewers uh, know, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, for anything Cliptox specific, you're paying out of pocket. You're not sponsored by Azure. I mean, do, do you get credits by Azure to host it in Azure? No. No, you don't. Okay. But, but I the company like. All of I pay all for all of the Azure services. I pay for all the Raven services. I do have sponsors that have yeah. paid for consideration that that have helped fund that. But 
um, I, I pay for all of that. And when, and and at the end of the month, when the bill comes in, Fritz starts making decisions. Do yeah. do we continue at this in this service, or do we need to move somewhere else? And and Nick, when the bill came in in November, not only did did Fritz look at that and go, "Ooh," but Mrs. C Sharp Fritz looked at that and said, "What the hell are you doing?" Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's why I want to mention is because you don't you don't really make decisions uh, you know nearly willy oh I have an infinite budget from Azure and I can choose anything and not be good at scaling it like you have to be optimal with your architecture with your design yes. and your architecture yes. choices and the great thing is you show difficult things like migrations and explain mm -hmm. why you're you're doing what you're doing so no it's it's a great source of information on how to use the platform and uh, obviously sponsors are always nice. Oh, um, definitely, but yeah, it's it's not something that you get an unlimited budget for, and in fact, you don't get any budget for. It, the and the side benefit of that also is now I don't have folks at Microsoft that are able to say, "Well, wait a sec, I gave you a little bit of money so that you could use X. You need to use X." No, I I can push back and say, "This doesn't suit my needs, and yeah. here's why." they can take that and use that information to make the product better, change some of their marketing. So there's there's features and things that are going to be coming with, with SQL Server over the next year that I'm I'm now privy to and and I'm very privileged to be able to have access to that, but I now can look at and see and I can discuss with them and they understand now my perspective as as small company that is trying to use their product and they can do more with because there is no filter between me and them. We work for the same company. Yeah, and, and to address a question in the chat, well, actually, it's not a question, it's a statement. Uh, yum Yum Rocks One asks, or not asks, says that I'm surprised Azure doesn't throw credits at him. Um, mm -hmm. I'm assuming this is intentional, so you don't have to worry about who owns the IP. Yes. And, and yeah, so it's it's a decision that you've made. I'm, I'm sure they'd love to, to you know, sponsor you. Um, but it's the, in my opinion, it's a smart thing to to not accept and just keep rolling on your own. You don't know what that could be, and you don't want to have to have any questions later down the road. Who exactly. who is that? Exactly yeah. right. I've I've had that discussion with with a vice president, um, and. We have a common understanding of this, and it's well documented. Here's where things start. Here's where they stop, and I pick up the bill for that. That's fine. You know, it, we've we've got a very clear um, delineation between responsibilities. That said, though, I'm happy to listen to an Azure group that says, "Hey, why don't you try my new feature X Y Z? How can this help?" And not a problem listening to that and discussing it. Because it, that helps everybody, which at the end of the day is is my job. Yeah. Um, and then another thing I want to touch on is cloud vendors need a I don't want to spend more than X setting, especially when playing around. Uh, all cloud vendors have a free tier and they're very clear about the limits of that free tier. And all Absolutely. of them have a budgeting tool as well where you can say that's how much I want to spend. I'm assuming all of them. I'm generalizing, but I know AWS does have the budget feature. And I'm pretty sure Azure with Azure Monitor has a similar feature as well, which mm -hmm. you can set a, a limit and say I don't want to spend more than that. Uh, I, I I turned off my budget for a few months and um, 
made a mistake in in configuration of a service and and another time when mrs c sharp fritz came oh no what the hell did you do yeah yeah i I worked that out and (laughs) lesson learned and documented and the product team looked at it said there's no problem with this ah they learned quickly there's a problem and I believe they've since addressed that. Yeah, so. use use the budgeting features. Like you can go oh, bankrupt yes. if you don't be mm-hmm. careful. Absolutely. I well, I look at the the budget on my Azure services weekly, weekly, and do you I'm have, turning off and moving things. Do you have a list for when things go wrong or when when things reach a limit to be like, oh, this is oddly higher this month. Go on and take. Oh a yeah. Picture. Yeah. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So and that's where I started to get to with Raven and uh, how how do I fix this? What's my next step? And I started searching for alternatives. Yep. So, and, and it's, it's not a knock on Raven at all. It's my data has grown and is behaving in a way that isn't optimal for their database service. And that's okay. Yep. Like we said earlier about .NET and Rust and Go, different tools for different problems. And not everyone has the same needs or the same budget. So like there's a, there's a place, um, and a time for everything that the biggest Absolutely. issue I have with technologies like Raven, uh, personally, is that people try to push them to me as if I should care because it's written in C sharp and .NET. And the truth is I could not give a, <clears throat> about what it's written in. I don't want to know. I don't <laughs> need to know. I need a product. And like, do I know what MariaDB or Postgres is written in? Probably see, but. I like, I don't care. That's not a selling point. Mm. I've used C sharp specific technologies like, um, event store and the, the <laughs> at scale, they were terrible and we had to move mm. away. Um, so the language itself is not a selling point to me, unless it's something okay. like, I don't know, Fortran, which <laughs> I, I run away. I don't know. I, I, I had a problem trying to run Hugo. The static website generator. Yeah, the Go like, one, right? Is it? I think it's Go. Okay. But, and and there were things that I was looking into, like, why isn't this working? Why, why? What's so difficult about this? What am I not doing right? And I realized as I was digging more and more into the source code, it was like, I can do this by just rendering Markdown using a MarkDig plugin with C Sharp. And I started writing my own blog rendering cons- a command line tool with C Sharp just because... I knew the technologies and I could write something in an hour or two that would take my markdown, generate HTML. That's all I needed. Yeah. And it grew and grew and grew. And now I've got a, a tool that's open source out there that it has its own embedded web server and I can write everything in a graphical user interface. It's, it's fun to build. I didn't need to do it. I didn't need to know what technology it was in. But to your point, I just needed a program to generate a static website. And it was easier for me to write something in C sharp. If somebody else takes advantage of it, great. If not, that's okay too. It solved my problem. Awesome. Well, on that note, if and and as we're reaching the actually we passed the two hour mark by like fifteen minutes. Um it's okay. if you want to plug in anything about what you do, where people can find you, etc., now it's the time to do it. So let chat know. What's up? All right, so the, the 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 plugs moment. Um, so you can find me on Twitch. I'm over. You can find me Tuesdays and Thursdays, um, Eastern time. I I 
typically start streaming at 9 a.m. Eastern on twitch.tv slash C Sharp Fritz. Um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm, I'm C Sharp Fritz over there. GitHub, uh, same name. Um, I'm on the Mastodon. You can find me out there. My Mastodon links on GitHub and Twitter and those places. Ah, there you go. Thank you. I'm, I'm plugging um, everything. I've uh, I've been building. We mentioned several times. I've been building a website called Clip Talk. K L I P T O K. Um, that builds and is built with Blazor. It it connects to a Raven DB. Runs completely on Azure. I'm fighting some database performance issues right now, but check that out. You're you're going to see how we can present and make Twitch clips more discoverable there. Uh, hopefully it's going to get a lot faster over the next week or two as I get more features built into it. And uh, I have a blog out there I publish content to at jeffreyfritz.com. Thank you awesome. so much, Nick. This has been Thank fun. Thank you so Great much for being here. Oh, no. Uh, awesome. Well, have a good rest of your day over here. It's, oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> it's evening. And I have a yeah. chat with uh, with with Chad now. <laughs> like I do Fantastic. Have a good one, chat. Go easy on Nick. All right. Well, yeah. <laughs> All right. Take care. Have a good one, Nick. Bye.